So this morning we are finally going to finish Matthew chapter 7, church. We'll finish Matthew 7. And just so you know, starting next week, we're actually going to take a break from Matthew for a little while and we're going to do a message series on the gospel with passages from both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we'll explain more next week what we're going to be doing and why we're doing all that. But, for that, but that said, for now, we are finishing Matthew 7 this morning. And really, what we're here seeing is the Bible, in a way, conclude Jesus' whole teaching on the Sermon of the Mount. And concerning this God-inspired conclusion, as you can see, on the one hand, it's only two verses, and they're pretty easy to understand. But then on the other hand, when we look more into these, what we're going to see is that Matthew and God through Matthew... I think actually a couple really important things to say to us here. A couple really important things that apply to Jesus, that concern the crowds who listen to him, and that certainly apply to you and me. But that said, before we even just do dive into them together, just quickly though, as for our outline for how we're going to do this, it's pretty basic, as we're just going to have two sections this morning, two sections, one for each verse. And as for what we'll see in them first, we're just going to be in verse 28. And there we're going to zoom in on how the crowd responded to Jesus' teaching and what that means for you and me. Which then second will lead us to verse 29 where we'll see God's word tell us why they responded the way they did and what that means for you and me. It's that simple this morning. And just so you know, in both of those sections, there's going to be one big word that's going to stick out and be something that you and I can take away from this morning. And so in summary, two sections. First, how the crowd responded. Second, why they responded the way they did. And one big word for us to take away. But all it said, let's just dive in then together here, church, and begin our first section. For this, we're just in verse 28, and we're noticing how the crowd responded to Jesus' teaching. And so look down to your Bibles this morning. As you do so, remember, Jesus just finished his long Sermon on the Mount. And in fact, only Jesus' words have been in the book of Matthew since chapter 5, verse 3. So Jesus has just said a lot, which leads Matthew, inspired by God, to narrate with this. Verse 28. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So let's quickly just break down that verse. So to begin, as you can see, this verse starts with, and when Jesus finished these sayings. And even that alone is significant with that plural there of sayings. Because hearing that, I do think that you and I are supposed to read that and almost in a sense recall all the sayings, all the teachings and topics and things to believe and do and feel that Jesus has just told us about. Meaning, I know for you and me, and I, and I did look this up this past week, we started together as a church, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, over five months ago, on Sunday, March 26th. And so we've been in this Sermon on the Mount for a long time, and so we've probably forgotten a lot of Jesus' sayings. But it's important to note that in the context here, Jesus just said all of them. And that said, for us, I do think that it's probably good here to just take a minute and quickly review all of Jesus' sayings from the Sermon on the Mount. Just briefly review, because I think this will be helpful for you and I to get in the right mindset. And so, as somewhat of a quick review of the Sermon on the Mount, just turn with me in your Bibles as we do this, back to Matthew 5 quickly. A few pages to your left, back to Matthew 5. And then we're going to do this so we can just all recall all the sayings that Jesus just has given us. And so to start, look down at your Bibles throughout this whole thing. Notice Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5 began with those counterintuitive and beautiful and rightly famous Beatitudes. 
right? And then after that, Jesus told us to, to let our light shine by how we live out those beatitudes and especially by our good works for the glory of the Father. And then in the middle of chapter 5, remember, Jesus then told us that he fulfills the whole Old Testament, which made him then enter into this very long, you have heard that it was said, but I said to you sections, where he over and over took something that they heard from their culture in the Old Testament, and he elevated it to a brand new tier. For example, Jesus taught us not just to avoid murder, but to also not be angry, or even more so to make peace. Or another example, right, was Jesus taught us not just to be fair and just, but to show mercy, or even more so to, in our hearts, actually love our enemies. Right, which continuing on now to chapter 6, led Jesus to warn us, and he really did warn us about doing religious things to be seen by others. For example, giving, praying, or fasting, which in the midst of that led him to his famous teaching on the Lord's Prayer. Which then, continuing on, if you're in your Bibles in chapter 6 now, led Jesus to some challenging and yet encouraging topics about laying up our treasures in heaven, how we do that instead of storing them up on earth, and also, though, about how we can trust our God for provision and in our anxieties. Which then, and we're almost done, starting now in chapter 7, led Jesus to that convicting teaching about not sinfully judging others. Which he then amazingly followed up with a really encouraging teaching about asking and it being given. Which then, starting to come to a close, led Jesus climactically to his famous teaching, which we now call the Golden Rule. Which all finally led Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount to his last big section, where after all of that, he warned us, or he told us, how for each one of us now, with all that he said, there's really only two options in how we respond to him. Only two options after hearing him. First, is trusting him as your savior and king and loving him and therefore wanting to follow what he said. Not trying to earn your salvation, but genuinely knowing who he is and following him. While second, the only other option is simply not doing that. And if you remember, Jesus wanted to emphasize those only two options in four different ways. First, with two gates and paths. Second, with two types of trees. Third, with two different types of confessions about him. And then fourth, finally, with only two foundations you and I can build our lives upon. And so church, I know it's a lot, but that's Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And hearing that, think about it, that's a lot from Jesus. That's a, that's a lot of brilliant teachings that were unique and yet also we're always in line with the glory of God and for Jesus' glory and our good. That, that's these sayings, which is, not, which is why, now finally continuing on in our verse here, that's why, with that in mind, Matthew adds this, quote, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. And now in that first, quickly notice, the crowds were astonished. That reminds us that, remember, this isn't him talking to a little group of people. These are crowds of people underneath this hill, this mountain, people just like you and me. And what do they feel? Well, they're astonished, which we're going to come back to in a second. And finally, what are they astonished at? Well, Jesus' teaching. And what's interesting about that is, just like in English, shown in the original Greek here, that, that word can be talking about not only what Jesus said, but technically also the way he said it. And so I do think the people back then were astonished at both. Literally, they just watched Jesus and heard Jesus, and they were astonished both at what he said and the manner and way in which he said it. All right, so that's, that's an overview on this verse. 
Which now, for the rest of our first section this morning, leads us though to really focus in on what I think is the most important idea here in this verse, and that's obviously that word astonished. Astonished. And this is one of the reasons why we're spending a whole message just on these two verses, because that word right there is really fascinating. It could definitely apply to you and me. Because think about this with me. Matthew, inspired by God, he could have chosen so many words to describe what the crowds were like after they heard Jesus' sayings. Right? He, could have, he, could, he could have said they were convicted, or they were humbled, or they were confused, or they were marveling, or other words like that. But instead, he chose this word, astonished. They were astonished. And so why choose that word? Well, I think there's layers of reason to it. And to start, in brief, what we first need to know is that this word here is in the passive tense. The passive tense, which I only bring up. I know it might sound confusing, but this is, this is helpful. So it's in the passive tense. And concerning the passive tense, if you remember this from grammar school days, remember, an active tense verb is something you do, while a passive tense verb is something that is done to you. And so this is in the passive tense. And that matters because this word, if it were in the active tense, were to mean something like to blow away or to drive out or to strike someone forcefully away from you. And so this is actually a strong verb. That's the active tense meaning. And why does that matter? Well, because again, this is actually in the passive tense, which means that the Bible is saying here that by what Jesus said, and in the way that he said it, the crowds were, in a sense, had this feeling of, of being struck, of being blown away. That's what was happening to them. Not in that they were pushed away from Jesus, that's not the point, but instead, Jesus of Nazareth spoke and they internally had this feeling of being blown away, being struck, or as we might say in English, astonished, because that originally comes from the idea of being stunned. And so in short, that, that's what was happening to this people, and the Bible wants us to know that, God's word wants us to know that but, that, but that's not even all that's interesting about this word here, because then also, along with that, what's also fascinating is that this word here only shows up four times in the whole book of Matthew, four times. And think about it, if you and I were to sit here and think about when we think people back then were struck or blown away by Jesus... I bet many of us would probably assume that that would mainly have happened at his miracles, right? His many miracles. We'd probably think, well, if people back then were encountering Jesus and they were blown away, struck, it'd be in response to his miracles probably. But instead of that, and this is so interesting, I didn't know this until this week, but again, this word astonished only shows up four times in the book of Matthew, and each time it is specifically in reference to Jesus' teachings, People were struck at his teachings. Here, they're struck at his teaching. And then in Matthew 13, 54, quote, And coming to his hometown, Jesus taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished, struck. Then in Matthew 19, 25, quote, And when the disciples heard this, they heard something Jesus said, they were greatly astonished. And finally, in Matthew 22, 33, quote, And when the crowds heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And now why bring all of those up? Well, because I do think... This is quite insightful. And this is now where this can really start to apply to you and me. Because concerning Jesus' miracles, and we'll talk about this when we pick up Matthew later, for example, in Matthew 8 coming up in the calming of the storm. But concerning Jesus' miracles, one of the main verbs that God's word seems to use and how people responded to those is the word marvel. 
right? The idea to marvel. The people marveled. And that makes sense because to marvel is this idea of what just happened? Who is this? So, so the, pe- the people saw Jesus' miracles and they had that happen to him. That was their response. But again, what about Jesus' sayings and his teachings? Or it's those that struck them, that blew them away, that astonished them. Meaning it is actually what Jesus said more than the miracles in history that he did which caused people to really be struck in the heart. And now we will talk about why specifically they were struck more so in our next verse, in verse 29. But in brief, that's really what's going on in verse 28. These people, in a sense, were struck, were blown away by and and stunned by what Jesus said. And that means, for for you and me, I, I think this verse should apply to us very simply because church, at the very least, when we hear Jesus' words, that's what should happen to us. We should seek to be astonished by, struck by what Jesus says. And, and especially in our, in our day and age, in our culture, and especially we as Christians, I think we should really take a moment and consider this. Consider that when we listen to Jesus, it should astonish us. Right? It should, in a way, be something that we look for, that we seek for, that we are expectant for when we dig into God's word and what God has to say. Because to really try to bring this home to you and me, think of it this way. To use another word, because we're just using a lot of words, to use another word here about everything uh, or concerning everything we've talked about this morning. If we had to choose a word, possibly, that we could say is in, uh, describes the culture we live in and the times we live in, we could probably say that the, the culture we live in doesn't mainly seek to astonish us or to really make us marvel as, ma- as much as, just think about it, we live in a day and age that so much just wants our attention and it's trying to mesmerize us, right? Mesmerize us. And I really think the more you and I consider that, we can see that is so much, right, of what our daily lives are. Because to mesmerize doesn't technically mean to strike to the heart or to cause you to deeply marvel. Instead, to mesmerize is just to fix your attention on something. And really consider, we live in a world of that. That's, that's mainly it, so shallow, from our jobs which take our attention, to our, to our phones, to our constant addiction for news and media, to the shows and the sports that we're so into, to the stresses that consume our lives. We live in a culture of just being mesmerized. And to be honest, to be mesmerized is not a sinful thing in itself, right? We have to have our attention on certain things. But all that said, I do think that this word here at church, to be astonished, points us to something more And that really is how you and I were made to be blown away, struck in the heart by something bigger than us, by something so true, by something that stops us in our distracted tracks. And that's Jesus and his teachings and his gospel. Or or to say one last way, brothers and sisters, well, Netflix and Facebook and Instagram or work and money and success or having the perfect family and, and wealth and health, while those are all vying for our attention, They're trying to mesmerize us and often just to make money off of us. I do think that we can know and we can apply verse 28 here and know that Jesus' goal with us has always been so much deeper. He wants to astonish you. He wants you to look away from these shallow things and look to something so much greater than just entertainment or your work or money or sexuality. That's the point. And now again, let's be really clear on this verse before we move on, that even just from this verse, you can see it, being astonished with Jesus isn't necessarily saving. 
right? Nor is it all there is to our faith. Because remember, from Jesus' example last week, we know that the wise person and the foolish person, they both heard what Jesus had to say. And so we can assume in a sense they might have both been astonished and yet only one of them actually decided to follow him and build their life upon what he said. And so, yes, being astonished is not all there is to our faith. And yet still, the truth still is, again, we probably don't think about this enough because Jesus' teachings and who he is and what he's done are astonishing. What God's word says is astonishing. And so just really practically, I do encourage you, make it a thing where you seek to be astonished by Jesus, astonished at God's word. Make it a thing where when you read your Bible, you do so prayerfully, expectingly, not just doing something because you know you should do it, but look to be struck in your heart, to be blown away and changed by what God says. So that's verse 28. That's our first section about how the crowds responded to Jesus' teaching and how we should as well. But that now leads us to our second section for this morning. And for this, we're obviously now going to be in verse 29. And here, though, we're going to see why the crowds responded with that astonishment at Jesus' teaching. Why? And it's interesting because Matthew is recording this for us, right? The book of Matthew. And remember, he's one of the disciples. And so he was there. And so you can imagine him writing verse 28 kind of easily because he noticed that Jesus' teachings really struck the people, that something was going on, that something happened to them and happened to him. But then, it's interesting, he adds this verse 29 for us. And inspired by God, I think he does so because he probably noticed the main reason why people were so struck and astonished. And so, and so why was it? What's the reason? Well, now look at verse 29. We'll read verse 28 for context as well. So verses 28 and 29. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For because he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And so why were they astonished? You see it. Well, because Jesus was teaching them, not in a way that they were used to like their scribes, but instead Jesus was teaching as one who had authority. Authority. And it is that word authority that is really important in this verse in our whole second section here. And this is a really important word concerning Jesus, concerning this whole book of Matthew, but also concerning you and I. Because quickly, let's just be honest, we might really not know what to do with this idea of Jesus having authority. And not only that, but we might hear this idea of authority and we may just kind of assume that that just means that someone's over us. Right, like a boss who can tell us what to do and kind of keep us from doing the things that we'd really like to do. But there is so much more to this idea of authority than that. And to see what's here for the rest of our time really together this morning, we're going to now spend some time answering just three questions on this idea of Jesus having such authority. Three questions. First, what is so authoritative about Jesus' teachings? Then second, what was and is so authoritative about Jesus himself? And then third and finally, what does Jesus' authority have to do with us? And so that, that's our three questions. So let's take them one at a time. And so first, let's just start by thinking and asking what was and is so authoritative about Jesus' teachings? And we need to ask this because you notice that is what they're directly astonished at in this text, right? They were astonished at Jesus' teaching because he taught with such authority. 
And so what was that back then? And what is that still today when we read Jesus' teachings? Well, there's a lot we could say, but concerning Jesus' authority and his teaching, when we look at it, there's two huge aspects to it, two huge aspects. Number one, remember, we talked about this a while back then in chapter five, but one thing that is stunning in Jesus' teachings in history is his constant refrain of truly, truly, I say to you, or you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And why was that such a big deal? Well, because remember, back then, the typical rabbi would mainly base what they said on the Hebrew scriptures. Or going even further back then to the Old Testament, all the prophets knew that they would say, thus says the Lord, meaning this is what the Lord has to say to you. Because their main job was to relay the words of God. But Jesus stands up and he mainly says over and over, truly, I say to you. You hear that? And when, we, and when we break that down, what that shows us is that Jesus does see himself as uniquely authoritative and that his authority is not derivative. Or to say it another way, it isn't a borrowed authority. And this is an important point because for literally all other authority in our universe, in our world, besides God's, besides Jesus's, it is in a sense derivative. It is borrowed. It's underneath the ultimate authority of God. For example, the prophets who were speaking God's word in the Old Testament knew they were under God's ultimate authority. Or the faithful rabbis who were explaining God's word knew they were explaining God's word, just like I'm here this morning trying to explain God's word. Right? Or think about any authority that exists in our world today. The government, according to Romans 13, does have authority, but only underneath God's authority. Or the husband does have authority in the home, but only underneath Christ's authority, 1 Corinthians 11. Or shepherd elders do have authority in the local church, but only under the authority of the great shepherd, right? 1 Peter 5. Parents have authority in the home, but only underneath God's authority, Ephesians 6. And more could be said, but we get the point. But again, what about Jesus' authority? ultimate. It's direct. In his teachings, it's I say to you. And the point is, they noticed that back then. <laughs> and we should too. Because in essence then, what's going on is the same God who spoke directly to Moses on the mountain was speaking to these people back then. And so that's the first aspect of Jesus' authority in his teaching. But then also, Second aspect of his authority in his teaching was also seen in what he actually then said, and especially in what he claimed about himself and his centrality and his importance. And for what I mean by this, just listen to a short paragraph from the theologian I read this week, and you'll see this connects to Jesus' authority of saying, I say to you, but notice it's also specific in what Jesus says and, and how he sees himself as central place. So this is a quote I read this week. It said this, the central point is this, Jesus' entire approach in the Sermon on the Mount is not only ethical, but messianic. Jesus is not an ordinary prophet who says, thus says the Lord. Rather, he speaks in the first person, and he claims that his teaching fulfills the Old Testament, that he determines who enters the messianic kingdom, that as the divine judge, he pronounces banishment, that the true heirs of the kingdom will be persecuted for allegiance to him, and that he alone fully knows the will of the Father End quote. In other words, Jesus' authority in his teachings isn't only that he directly speaks with ultimate authority, as I say to you, but it's also that in what he says, he makes everything ultimately about your and my relation to him. And really, that is an amazing thing that he claims that, isn't it? 
Because I know we are so used to hearing that. We know Jesus does that. But just quickly, imagine yourself hearing this for the first time back then. Because no one really spoke like that back then. And no one speaks like that today. And honestly, this is a, this is a great example of why C.S. Lewis's famous liar, lunatic, or Lord distinction, if you've heard that, really does prove true. Because think about it. Here and elsewhere, Jesus teaches this way with such authority and such centrality on himself. And so we have to say he can't be. He's not just some regular moral spiritual teacher. He isn't. He can't be that. Instead, the only options are, number one, he, he said those things, but all along he knew he was lying. And if that was the case, then he's an incredibly prideful and self-centered and crooked person. Or the second option is that he's literally crazy. That he does think he can speak directly for God. And he does think that everything centers on himself, but he's, old, he's ultimately just mentally unstable. Or finally, option number three is he really is who he says he is. He does have such authority. He is the Lord God among us, the Savior and the King. And it is this latter option that makes the most sense and is true. So all that said, that church is our answer to our first question here of what was and what is still so authoritative about Jesus' teaching. That brings us, though, to our next question. And for this, we're now just going to ask more broadly, what is authoritative about Jesus himself? And of course, this overlaps with the question about his teaching. But I want to ask this and answer this because, in short, I think we all need to know that this word and idea of authority is really important in these Bible books that tell the story of Jesus' life, which, which we call the Gospels, right? Because as for Jesus himself, just think about it. What we talked about here, about his authority, and then what, what we're going to see in the context is that he's basically from here on out going to be proving that he really does have all authority. Authority. Meaning he isn't just some guy who claims to be God, who claims to be the Messiah, the Savior, and the King, and people just happen to believe in him. But by how Jesus lives and by what he does, he's basically showing and proving it over and over and over. And yes, the point from verse 29 here is he just did that in the Sermon on the Mount for three chapters, that's true. But think about it, very soon, right after this in Matthew, Jesus is going to continue to show more and more and prove that he has such authority. For example, Jesus is soon going to write away in the next chapter and in many, many stories, he's going to show that he has authority over all sicknesses and diseases. Right? And then Jesus will continue to prove his authority over things like the wind and the waves during a crazy storm, which he does to show that even nature obeys whatever he commands. Right? And then later on, Jesus will talk about how he not only has authority over sickness and nature, but he even has authority to forgive individual people's sins as well. Which in the Bible is really clear. Only God has the ultimate right to do that. And then Jesus, you know, will prove his authority over and over and his authority over demons and unclean spirits. Right? And then at the end of his life, Jesus will willingly go and die as a criminal, even though he's innocent. And then he'll amazingly show his authority over death by rising himself from the dead. Which then finally, in this book of Matthew, is made known. After Jesus rises from the dead, in the very last paragraph in this book of Matthew, what does Jesus leave us with? Well, the first truth that Jesus declares to his disciples after he's risen from the dead in Matthew 28 is that he has, quote, all authority in heaven and on earth. And now I say all that because the point then is for you and I, church, that's Jesus. 
It really is. And that's what this idea of authority is going to point us to. It points us to who Jesus truly is, and not just in his teaching, but he, who he totally is as well. He has all authority. And so that's our second question here on Jesus' authority, which finally leads us to our third and last. And this is now where we apply it and simply ask, and so what does Jesus' authority then have to do with you and me? with you and me. And for this, the answer is really twofold, twofold. And to be honest, again, we really need to think about these things because I do think in our modern culture of individualism, we usually do not think of authority rightly, right? We probably hear that word and we might hear it as a negative thing if we admitted it, but it does not need to be. And so what does Jesus' authority have to do with you and me? Well, two things, two things. Number one, everything now tells us, or all that shows us that for them back then and for us still today, Jesus' authority is the ultimate authority in the universe. It really is in our universe. Which means, number one, that yes, it is a direct challenge to you and I if we think about our lives or we hear about Jesus and we still think, no, 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 I still want to have my own authority. My own little area of ultimate authority apart from Jesus. And this is really an important application to get. And specifically because but what's really important here is that we must realize that this applies to you and I whether we want it to or not. Meaning we've each now in this room heard the truth that Jesus alone has ultimate authority. And hearing that technically, I hope we know that's just true. Meaning the Bible nowhere teaches that Jesus' ultimate authority depends on little you or me embracing his authority. Now, we can talk about, of course, receiving Jesus and embracing his authority. That's true. But saying that we make Jesus authoritative in our lives, I hope you know, technically is not true. Or to say it another way, the question isn't, will you make Jesus authoritative over your life? Instead, it's Jesus is the ultimate authority over all things, including your and my life and everyone's on this planet. And so the question is, what will you do with that fact? Because if you say, well, I won't embrace it, then sure, you you can do that. But really the point from Matthew here and the point from all over the New Testament is that's basically you deciding to live in unreality and trying to rebel against the only good king of the universe. And so again, you can do that, but the truth is even if you do, he still does have authority and right over your and my life over every sphere of our lives, over all our choices and decisions, over everything that goes on in our lives. Or to use a very famous quote about Jesus' authority, which you might have heard from a theologian about 100 years ago, talking on this topic of Jesus' authority, he said this famously, quote, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And again, I just want you to know that that's true. And so the first thing for us here is that this is a challenge if we think that we have our own little patches of sovereign authority that Jesus can't touch. Because we don't. Jesus has all authority. And again, that shows us, he shows us that here in his teaching. He's going to continue to show it throughout the historical stories we're going to go over in Matthew. And he still has such authority as the risen king right now. And so that's the first thing that this means for us. But then the second thing this means for us, and on the flip side in a way, as if the first thing is about Jesus' authority being true and therefore it can be challenging. So the flip side is that the second thing is that Jesus' authority being true, church, is the reason why you and I can truly trust him and rely on him and rest secure in him. 
We can have confidence in Jesus and rest secure in him because of his authority. And this is finally now where this idea, throughout this whole message, we finally got to the point where this idea of Jesus' authority, or even of being astonished by Jesus' authority, can go from something bigger than something we just hear, or something we're even just astonished by, to something that saves us. Or something that, if we're already Christians, truly changes us. Meaning this goes from something now where it's just a truth that we can believe or not to something we taste sweet in our hearts, to something where because of this, we do more and more trust and love Jesus. Because think about it, it's one thing to actually believe that Jesus has authority or even to be astonished by it. But again, I want you to know that technically is not saving faith in itself, nor is that life-changing faith in itself. Instead, what does it mean to actually personally be a Christian? Well, we rightly say that it means to have faith in Jesus. That's true. We trust in Jesus. What does that mean? Well, it means that we realize that Jesus is the king of the universe. Right? He is the only sovereign savior of the universe who did what needed to be done to save sinners like you and I, and that he does have all authority. And therefore, knowing all that, what do we do? Well, in faith, we basically recognize who he is and his authority and his good news, and we gladly embrace him. My faith is happily acknowledging it is true. I'm, I'm a broken sinner. It is true. I do not have ultimate authority over my life, my heart, my ways, but man, that's okay. And even that's a good thing in a sense. And so, Jesus, I trust you. I trust you to save me, to love me, and I want to follow you. And that's why Jesus' authority really is encouraging. And again, it can lead to more peace and rest. Because guess what doesn't lead to ultimate, lasting, deep peace or rest? Well, it's living as if we have our own individual sovereign areas of authority. Because sure, that might sound good at first, but you and I in this room all know we do not do a good job ruling our lives. <laughs> And so instead of that, once, once we've realized that Jesus has all authority, like he's displayed in the Sermon on the Mount, like he does in all of his life, like he does when he rises from the dead, it's then that we can realize he's able to be trusted. And, it's, and then once we realize that he did that for me personally, he's worthy to be loved. Because sure, right, if we had a God who said he loved us, but didn't have all authority over nature, over forgiveness, over sickness, over spiritual darkness, over our lives and decisions, over history, authority to die in the place of sinners. If we didn't have a God like that, then sure, concerning a God like that, we could appreciate his really kind intentions, but we couldn't fully trust him. Or we couldn't bank our lives on him because he wouldn't have all authority. But in reality, the Jesus we love and trust does have all authority. He taught like it, he showed it throughout his life and he showed it especially in his death and resurrection. And so for you and I, we should be astonished at it, but even more so, we should trust him because of it. And so that's, that's our passage, church. And really, that now sets us up in a way. That's why Matthew's doing it for the rest of this book. Because again, from here on out, Jesus is going to continue, teach, or continue astonished with his teachings, but also he's just gonna over and over prove his authority. Again, which is all climactically leading to his astonishing and authoritative act where he sovereignly decides to die, suffer, rise for the sake of his people. He has authority to do that as well. Or quickly, as Jesus himself says, this is in John chapter 10, but as we close, just listen to this from Jesus. Quote, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. That's Jesus. And so one last time for you and I, let's just make sure we respond to Jesus' teachings like the crowds did here with astonishment as his, his authority, but also please, let's just each make sure we do that in a saving and life-changing way. Meaning, yes, church, let's leave here being amazed at Jesus. And yes, let's be astonished at what he has to say. And yes, let's acknowledge his authority. Many things like that, what the, what the crowds already did. But also, let's make sure that we take it one step further to the, to the step of genuine faith and love. And let's really trust and love this Jesus because of his authority. Amen? Amen, let's pray and then we'll take the supper together. Let's pray.